This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. At least 11 states now, including Florida, Texas, and Iowa, among others, have banned COVID-19 vaccine mandates and or passports, even as more than a dozen other states have similar legislation pending. But other blue states either are working to launch or have launched their own vaccine passports, such as in New York, the Excelsior Pass or California's digital COVID-19 vaccine record. And who knows where this might end? Even USA Today recently ran a story with this headline. Honor system paper cards won't cut it for COVID vaccine verification. Experts say vaccine passports are coming. But is this really about public health? In fact, tech experts have noted that the digital platform used by vaccine passports is the same one used by the Chinese social credit system, which means such passports could become tools to track you and control everything you do. What do we do about it? We're going to get some thoughts on it today from China expert Reggie Littlejohn, who is president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers. And Reggie, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Janet. I'm delighted to be here. It's good to talk to you. What do you think about this whole concept of vaccine passports? This just looks like the most uh, incredible opportunity to take advantage of a crisis, it seems. What, what is your perspective? Well, I would agree with that. And I have actually, uh, together with others, have actually launched an initiative to stop them. So our website is stopvaxpassports.com. And we are doing everything we can to stop the rollout of this. So one thing people need to understand uh, is that we make a distinction between the vaccine and the vaccine passport. I was talking to a friend of mine about a month ago. He's an eminent surgeon, extremely brilliant man. And I said to him, what do you think about the vaccine passport? He said, well, I've been vaccinated. My whole family's been vaccinated. And I said, well, I'm not talking about vaccines. I'm talking about the passport. And he just looked at me blankly like he had no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) So we want to say we're not necessarily anti-vaxxers, but as you just said, the vaccine passport uses the same digital platform as the China social credit system. And we do not want this digital platform on American phones. No, I agree with you completely. So knowing what you do about the social credit system in China, explain to people why that matters in the context of bringing or potentially bringing vaccine passports to America. How do those things connect? Okay, so this is something that tech experts have have warned about, is that the vaccine passport starts out just saying, well, whether you've been vaccinated or not but that the functionality of the the China social credit system, it would take a matter of minutes or hours, very short period of time, to to, uh, encompass all this functionality in the vaccine passport. So what is the functionality? What is is the China social credit system? So in China, it's, it's a surveillance state, and on people's phones, they aggregate all of this information. So... They track your medical history, 
your social media posts, see if you've said anything against the government, your bank account, your credit card, your shopping history. You know, have you ever bought something you wouldn't want the government to know about? Well, they know about it in China. Your internet search history, your residence, your place of employment, your criminal history, facial recognition, the network of your relationships, your religious activities, and and whether or not you participate in Xi Jinping thought, which is a Chinese thing. That he's trying to brainwash everybody and he wants everybody to listen to him and then answer questions showing that, you know, that you understand his thought and you agree with it. So what they do is they, they have all of this aggregated into one place as a centralized database that will come out with a number about, you know, how reliable of a citizen that you are. And if you have a high number, you can lead what looks like a normal life. Like you can, you know, you can travel, you can buy a home, you can get your kids into the schools, you know, that you want them to go to, you can have a job. But the thing is, you are not free because as soon as you post something or do an internet search that is against the narrative of the Chinese Communist Party, the first thing they can do is they can shut down your access to your credit card and your bank account, right? Right. And in a cashless society, which China is and which I oppose in the United States, for this precise reason, if you live in a cashless society and if the government shuts down your credit cards and your bank account and you're severed from those those things, then how do you how do you even begin to live? Right. You can't even buy food. Right. And then if and if you are a real dissident and you've had the courage to stand up against the Chinese Communist Party, you know they have facial um, recognition and geolocation, and they can disappear you in a matter of minutes. <sighs> we don't want that ability, that functionality here. Right. Well, now when you're talking about China, people will probably scoff a, a lot and say, well, we're not China. We don't have a communist party running things here. We don't have a dictatorship. But yet you listen to some of the things that those on the left are talking about where they're saying if you're banned on one social media platform, you should be banned on all of them. We're going to go door to door and ask you about your vaccination status, etc. But it doesn't seem to match, Reggie, because when you look at the survival rate from the CDC regarding COVID-19, it's very high, not to mention the fact there was a recent study coming out that said people who have already had COVID-19 are thought to have pretty strong natural immunity, which would be, it would seem, according to the science, uh, maybe not as necessary to have the COVID-19 vaccine if you didn't want to have it and you just wanted to rely on your natural immunity. So how do they even make a case that, uh, I guess with the Delta variant, this is going to be the the point that they stress, but how do they make COVID-19 such a big issue now to justify vaccine passports. I mean, aren't we in a, a downward cycle right now in terms of hospitalizations and deaths? Well, this is the thing. Uh, and I've listened to, you know, many hours of vi- virologists talking um, about, uh, about this question, which is that the way that a virus works is that it's most virulent, it's most deadly in the beginning. Right. And it doesn't want to be that deadly going on because if you kill the host, which is the person, then your virus ends with the person. So what happens over time is you get these variants and the, and the variants become more transmissible and less deadly. And so what we're seeing is all of these um, these statistics about the Delta variant. Like, oh, these cases of the Delta variant are spiking. Well, I want to know how many people are being hospitalized and how many people are dying of it? Because I think that it is, that it is probably much less virulent than the original. 
And then, so, so what's the problem? I mean, I had the coronavirus. It was like a cold to me. I know I had it because I lost my sense of taste and smell. And because I took a test that came out positive. All right. It was like, it was, it was like almost, it was very close to a non-event other than that I had to be quarantined. Okay. So everybody should be able to do a risk benefit analysis. People who are are at high risk. That if they would if they would catch it they would die or if they would catch something like it like the flu there are people who catch the flu and die if a person is in that state of health then they might want to take the vaccine but what I don't understand is pushing vaccines on kids and on pregnant women these populations were never tested in the very shortened testing period uh, for the vaccine and I'm just reading an article here in in um, France. That they are that they are having a COVID health pass where kids ages 12 and up cannot enter a cinema, theater, museum, theme park, or cultural center starting on July 21st unless they've been vaccinated and they have a vaccine passport. Wow. I mean, we have no idea what the long-term effects are going to be on children. I don't see why they're requiring that of kids. I don't either. And and not to mention, wasn't it Dr. Fauci who recently talked about the fact that three-year-olds should wear masks? I mean, this, this is ridiculous. That's not a scientific opinion. That seems to be more of a political opinion. And that's why I think more people aren't getting the vaccine, because they don't completely trust our government. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard. It, it, it's really hard. You know, with, with a three-year-old, we know that there are, that their mortality rate, their death rate of a, of a kid that young is like, something like zero point zero 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 one or something yeah. like one in a million. Yeah. Um, and then I also read a study that, that the kids are really not the ones who are transmitting this disease to the adults. So, um, so, so the thing that's really hard about it is that the people who want to take an alternate view and say the things that I just said or that you have said end up getting suppressed. I know. It's so true. Reggie, hang on a moment. I do need to pause for a quick break. We'll come back with Reggie Littlejohn talking about vaccine passports. Stay with us. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people. And, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger or spiritual hunger is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa. On average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um, about 100 people and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can, you know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible League is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. 
You can be the answer to a Bibleist believer praying for God's Word through Open the Floodgates, Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and your gift right now of any size will help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YESWORD, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the Scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, we're learning more and more from leftist politicians and pundits what they think about those Americans who don't want to get the COVID-19 vaccine or they don't want to get it yet. There are people who are on the sidelines for various reasons, and there are a lot of Americans who have also taken the vaccine. But what happens if and when we get to the point where there are vaccine passports, as already have been developed in in certain blue states like New York and California. Reggie Littlejohn is with us. She's a China expert and president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers. And she is heading up this effort to stop this idea of bringing about vaccine passports. You can check out stopvaxpassports.org. Reggie, you were saying something important before the break. That is this idea that people who have a varying opinion uh, on, on whether or not we should have you know children taking shots and things like that. The problem now is you have even the Biden administration saying, well, we're working with Facebook to suppress disinformation. Isn't it the free exchange of information that's so vital at a time like this so the truth can come out when you're allowed to hear all of the sides? Well, yes. And that's what, you know, that's one of the main things that we learn even just in high school civics class. Yeah. The the marketplace of ideas. The marketplace of ideas. And it's like, this is the, the American way. This is what the freedom that our forefathers and mothers fought and died for is that we would have free speech. And so that, that if there is a, you know, a scientific debate, then the, the side that, that should win will win because everybody's talking about it and, and, and the, right, the right side will, um, will uh, emerge. But I, I saw on YouTube an eminent scientist um, and this is a, a related question, but he was talking about um, the Wuhan lab leak theory, right? Right. And, and, and what he said is that, you know, in the beginning, the idea that this escape from a lab was poo-pooed as being a crackpot idea, and now it's gaining more and more credibility. And what he said, and he, he's like a geneticist, he said, look, there's, there's a part of this genetic um, DNA of this virus that could not have come from nature, okay? So he was, he was 100% sure that this came from a lab. And he said, I want to end my, my testimony or my statement with a chilling story, which is I called one of my colleagues, another eminent geneticist, and said, would you please review this for me and give me your thoughts? And he said, no. Hmm. And I said, well, will you give it to somebody in your lab to do that? He said, no. And I said, why? And he said, because if I do anything to point, to, to say that this came from a lab, where our, our funding is going to get cut off. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So I mean, so this is this is the way that China has infiltrated everything. It's not just big tech. China, China, it have, they have a lot of money, and most of it is American money that we gave them. You know, yeah. that, that with our trade deficits. But um, and, and so they have infiltrated the, the natural exchange or like the scientific exchange. So. So in, in the world of science, you want to collaborate with other people. You know, you figure that everybody's adding something. But what they do is they use our openness. They use our trust. They use our information 
to, and they almost weaponize it against us. We cannot trust them, and we need to completely cut these, these collaborative ties because they abuse them to their own advantage. Totally right. Totally right. Well, now, the, the, some of the questions that have come up, Reggie, involve the legality and or the constitutionality of even being able to have a national vaccine passport. And thus far, even the Biden administration has kind of you know, stood back and said, we're not going to do that. But it, could it even happen? I mean, how would they bring it about? You have all these states banning vaccine passports. You have others implementing them. But if they were to try to create some kind of national vaccine database on which they could tell, whether or not you were vaccinated and then move on to vaccine passports. Is that even feasible or could the state laws, you know, be wiped out if a federal law were passed to do this? I mean, what, what are some of the scenarios people ought to be concerned about? Well, so this is the thing. When you say feasible, technologically, it is feasible. And, yeah. that's, and that's what my, my tech friends have been jumping up and down. So I have um, one friend, digital friend, his name is Jay Valentine. And he is the person who designed the fraud detection uh, software for eBay. All right. He's a big tech guy. And he was on our webinar. People should watch our webinar. It's on the softbackspassports.org website saying, yes, it would be very easy to, uh, to, to incorporate all the functionality of the Chinese social credit system onto a digital vaccine passport uh, that is that is carried on your phone. Wow. Okay, so so that is something that we must stop because once this gets on our, our phones, and once we have all this aggregation of you know our, our, our social media posts, our religious activities. I mean, just think of it. Let's say that you post something on Facebook or Twitter that is in favor of President Trump, God forbid, yeah. or who is, or, or, or that says that you believe in, in biblical marriage. Oh, no. Right. Or if you're pro-life or, or, or that you, you question the vaccine. OK, so that will be attached to this vaccine passport um, and so that they can identify you in the wrong hands, in, in the hands of people who disagree with those things. They can identify you possibly as an enemy of the state. And Jay Valentine wrote and, and uh, a piece called Vaccine Passport, First Step Towards a, a National Enemies List. Okay? Mm. So, so you think this can't happen. Yeah. It can happen, and yeah. we need to stop it. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, th- there were people on the left, Lincoln Project types, who were coming out on Twitter around the time of the election and saying we're compiling a list. I mean, they said it. We're compiling oh, a list. Right. Of, yeah, right. They're already saying that they're going to do it. Right. So why, do we, why, don't we, why do we think that they're not going to do it? They are going to do it. And they're probably doing it already. And you and I are probably on it, Janet. <laughs> probably. It's too late for you me. Know, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Um, so, what I, you know, the next question, of course, is what can people do? And, we, you know, so we've got this petition on the stopvaxpassports.org uh, website. And that, by the way, it's stopvaxpassports.org. And I would urge the listeners to sign this petition, and we have designed this petition so that we're not going to blow your confidentiality, because I think people are afraid. And that's, that's so un-American. Yes. We're afraid to, to dissent. But, I, but, you know, I think that those fears are real. So if you sign it, you, it's just going to be your first name, the first letter of your last name, and your state. But you cannot be identified. Um, and we're, so we're protecting people in that way. But I would urge you to sign it. Uh, so that we can get as many signatures as possible and be able to go to the government and say, you know what, 
there is there is a political will that, that this cannot happen, and you can you need to not do this. Good. Do you have any corroborating support from uh, you know politicians in Washington? Because obviously there are a lot of politicians in Washington who are virulently opposed to this idea as well. Have you been able to form any kind of growing coalition along those lines? Well, this there are there are politicians in um, D.C. who have either sponsored legislation or, are, you know, or, or are doing something in order to oppose this. Um, and, and what we need is we need, you know, more signatures on this petition so that we can be a credible voice. Because Good. if you only have, you know, 50 signatures on your petition, no one's going to listen to you, right? Right. But if you've got 50,000, uh, then they will listen to you. And then we can, that can really help build the movement. Well, I love that. Let me give that out again. It's stopvaxpassports.org. That's stopvaxpassports.org, and you'll find the petition there. Reggie, some people are still holding on to the hope that HIPAA will protect us from the government, knowing whether or not we've been vaccinated if they don't open their doors when the government bureaucrat comes to the door, being, you know, ding dong, have you been vaccinated? If they get away with not having to answer that question, they might still have some faith in HIPAA. There are privacy laws. They can't know if I'm vaccinated or not. But doesn't it, you know, kind of raise some antennas here when we're looking at what pundits are now saying, which is we should have schools and businesses and airlines making sure that you can't go go and do business with them unless you've had a vaccine. And the airlines in particular, I was just reading, they have data because of international travel that they say on their websites they could share with a third party. So it seems there could be some workarounds there, even if the government can't directly ask you if you're vaccinated and, and get that information. Uh, they probably can anyway, but the airlines have access to it. So is HIPAA any protection at all? First of all, what, what you bring up a very important point that, that even though the Biden administration says they're not going to do some kind of a federal um, vaccine passport, they also said they're not, not going to stop other people, other states, other companies from, from, from doing basically the same thing. And so even if the federal government has not instituted a vaccine passport, if your school is requiring you to, to, have, you know, to be vaccinated or have a passport to enroll, the airlines, restaurants, entertainment venues, et cetera, uh, you know, grocery stores, you're not going to be able to live your life. Uh, so they'll say, oh, it's not required, but, you know, if you want to uh, go to the grocery store, if you want to fly, if you want to do all these things, you have to have it. That, that is a, a mandated thing. Now, concerning HIPAA, the thing about these laws is that, um, that the state and, and uh, others have, been, have really said, you know, if we are under a state of emergency, all this stuff goes out the window. And, hmm. and so, the, to me, the important thing is to discern whether we are in a state of emergency. So when we started out with all this stuff, it's true. In the beginning, the, the virus is extremely deadly. All these people were dying. You know, the hospitals were, were um, overwhelmed. But at this point, it seems kind of more or less to have frittered out. And, I, and I'm not seeing any data on how deadly the Delta variant is, okay? And I think maybe that's because it's not very deadly. It's, it's sort of like <laughs> a non-event for most people. So, that, so the question is, are we still in a state of emergency? Because if we are not in a state of emergency, they can't... They can't take away all of these, um, all these rights that we have. Yeah. And, and this is the other thing, Janet, is that this, the way that this is working is, you know, it, America was founded on the idea that we have rights that come from God. They are unalienable rights, and the state does not have the right to take them away. 
And this whole vaccine passport is like, oh, we're in a, an emergency, we're in a pandemic. So the state is taking away these rights and we'll give them back to you if you obey by getting vaccinated and getting a vaccine passport. That is very Chinese Communist Party. I mean, that's, that's the way the Chinese Communist Party operates. It's like, we, are, we don't believe in God. And so we, um, we're the ones who determine what rights you have. And if, you, if we think you have a right, you have it. If we think you don't have a right, you don't have it. Yeah, that's no good. Well, you can visit stopvaxpassports.org. And I hope you do. Reggie Littlejohn, thank you so much, Reggie. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, there is some good news now about this national popular vote interstate compact that was looming as such a threat to our electoral college last year. Did you know that not one state this year has joined the compact and no state legislature has passed any national popular vote legislation? That is a really big victory. So what happened? We're going to find out more about it now from Trent England, Executive Director of Save our states, the one group dedicated to defending the Electoral College and stopping this dangerous national popular vote campaign. Trent, so good to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Janet. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I'm glad to get some good news. We so rarely get good news these days in the political sphere, but this is really a shot in the arm, I think, for a lot of us who have been extremely concerned about the Democrats' plans to undo the Electoral College. Can you bring us up to speed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they were pushing as hard as ever for this early this year. And of course, most state legislatures start meeting in January or February, and most of them are done by, you know, April, May, June, some sometime in there. And as you say, uh, just about every single one of those bills, 28 out of 29 bills, uh, has died so far this year. And frankly, the one that's left is in Wisconsin, and it's not, it's not going to move up there. So uh, it's, it's been a great victory. And it's not just a a partisan victory, which is, I think, really exciting and instructive. You know, we have been able to stop this, even in states like Virginia and Maine, where the Democrats control everything. Yeah. Because there, there are some Democrats. Once you get out of Washington D.C., you know, I think I think unfortunately that the folks in D.C. are a little different. But once you get outside of Washington D.C., there there are some Democrats and plenty of Republicans who understand we need to keep the electoral college. We don't want to basically tear down state lines and strip away state power in in presidential elections. It would be a huge mistake. It would be, and that is big news too. The fact that you've just mentioned that it's a nonpartisan sort of issue. When once you get out of the beltway. Can you refresh listeners' minds a little bit on what this whole thing is about? Obviously, this is about stopping the Electoral College and making it easier for the left to win elections. And in light of what's going on right now with some of the votes uh, in irregularities, shall we say, in Georgia and Arizona, uh, how does this all tie together? And, and what do you think really is driving this whole thing? Yeah, so, I mean, this goes all the way back to the 2000 election when Al Gore lost to George W. Bush. And, you know, just like in in 2016, a lot of conservatives looked at the the map from the election, not the state map, but the county level map and said, well, you know, gee whiz, we really live in a red country. Uh, You know, there's just some of these cities that are really intensely blue. Well, of course, the, the Democrats looked at the same map and they said, 
you know, we've got these cities, that's where our power base is, and if we could get rid of the Electoral College, we'd have a much better shot to use that urban power base to win the presidency. And so they launched this effort called National Popular Vote to try to get states to essentially give away their electoral votes. Um, it, it's not a constitutional amendment. Sometimes people think, oh, well, they'd have to change the Constitution. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, they came up with something really clever where, you know, if you get states to say, we're going to, going to ignore our own voters and choose presidential electors based on the nationwide vote, you can force the Electoral College to rubber stamp the national popular vote results. So that's that's what they're trying to do. And, and it's it's become not just about, you know, helping the Democrats win, in, in my opinion. I, I think it's also become a part of this whole H.R. 1, S. 1 agenda yep. to shift power out of the states. And, you know, basically, ultimately, what they want is to force California-style election policies down on the entire country. You know, no voter ID, no protections uh, on elections, and uh, getting rid of the Electoral College is, is a way for them to move that agenda forward. Well, I, I think you're right on the money about that. So when we're looking at states like Maine, as you mentioned before, and Virginia, what specifically happened in those states? How were those efforts stopped? Yeah, I mean, those were those were our biggest victories this year and, and also last year. Uh, we, we've had big legislative fights in, in both of those states. And in, you know, in Maine, it's interesting. They divide their electoral votes up by congressional district, and they also have ranked choice voting now in Maine. And, you know, whatever anybody thinks about either one of those systems, it's a reflection of state power, right? The Maine legislature has the power to do that. And one of the things that that we went up and pointed out, and this was actually kind of a fun part of, you know, I I like it when you can win just by educating people and sort of pointing to some obvious things that they haven't, you know, that from their perspective, they just haven't seen yet. And we, we pointed out to the folks in Maine, if you go down this national popular vote road, you can't have your your votes divided up by congressional districts, which you think better represents your state, and you can't do ranked choice voting, right? You're going to lose all this state autonomy, Hmm. And that it was interesting to watch some of the Democrats there, especially sort of wake up to wait a second, like this this national left wing agenda that's being driven out of California is not good for Maine. You know, even even if, uh, you know, it's sort of supposedly going to help candidates on the left. In, in Virginia, I think it was more about some of the, the Democrats in the Virginia state Senate looking specifically at the details of the national popular vote compact uh, which is which is very problematic if you you know for people who really understand the mechanics of elections uh, this whole NPV campaign is is really it's a Rube Goldberg strapped together clunky scheme <laughs> to manipulate the electoral college and these democrats you know joined with with all the republicans and said you know, this this is not a good idea. It, it would lead to less trust and more litigation. And to their to their great credit, they said no way. Well, that's good. I'm wondering too how many of these folks might have woken up to the idea that it can go both ways. I mean, if you start putting this kind of system into effect, what happens if everything goes red and they take advantage? It's kind of like getting rid of the filibuster. It can be good when you're in charge and not so good when the other guy's in charge. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You know, I, I do think that. You know, especially at the at the state and local level, some of the more pragmatic Democrats or just those who maybe think a little more long term understand that, you know, if you change the rules of any election system, it's very hard to predict what will happen. But the one thing you know is that 
it won't just be like, you know, like if 2016 was held under different rules, Hillary Clinton would have won because she got the most popular votes under the, the set of rules we had before, right? You change the rules, you change the way the campaigns work, and you change the outcomes. Yeah. And I, I think I, I do think there are there are a lot of folks who get that, right? That, yeah. you know, Michael Bloomberg would not have run and lost for the Democrat nomination if uh, if there was no electoral college. He, he would have run a separate campaign, and spent his billions of dollars uh, in, in the general election splitting up the vote. And, you know, that that very well could have hurt the Democrats. True. Uh, and, you know, it's just and you probably would have had several other billionaires decide, well, I want to run for president. Whoever wins might win with 15 or 20 percent of the vote. And I think, you know, everybody then sort of looks at that and says, well, that's probably not a good idea, right? That's, <laughs> yeah. that's not something that looks very democratic at that point. Yeah, you're right about that. It would be hard for them to yell about disenfranchisement as well, but I don't know how much they care about that in an HR1 world. This is what they're all aiming for. But when we get back to the importance of the Electoral College trend, I know a lot of people, unfortunately, didn't study much in civics, perhaps, and they don't understand how we were formed as a union. But what is your short pitch on why the Electoral college needs to stay as is and why that was such a good idea in the first place. Yeah, the, the founders, they first considered a parliamentary system, but they said, no, we want to have checks and balances. And to do that, you've got to have separation of powers. So the president has to be separate from Congress. Then they looked at a popular vote system. And the big problem with that was the same problem we would have today, that you've got some really big states, some really big cities. And if you just throw all the votes in one bucket, then you can have, you know, your, your New Yorks and your Californias and your Illinois just, you know, basically if they all agree on what they want, they don't have to listen to your Vermonts or your Oklahomas where, where I am, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the small states can be left out. James Madison said that at the Constitutional Convention, and it is still true today. And frankly, that's why the, the two big democratic countries that wrote new constitutions in the 20th century, India and West Germany, which now is the constitution for all of Germany, um, both of those countries created a kind of electoral college system because they wanted the same kind of geographic balance that we have in this country that, that actually tends, you know, it, it tends to make our politics more more national, more unified, yep. more inclusive. You know, obviously it doesn't solve all of our ills, but it's better than the alternative. For sure. SaveOurStates.com. Trent England, thank you for all the great work you've done. Trent, congratulations. Glad to have you here. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855 855- 
855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. The battle for life has heated up in our country, and standing for life is more difficult than ever. The Ministry of Preborn empowers young women in crisis to choose life. By letting an expectant mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see him on an ultrasound, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. She did let me hear the heartbeat, and I was like, wow, it's something like living inside of me. It was a beautiful thing to hear. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today and help women with crisis pregnancies choose life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. We really need your help during these summer months when donations tend to slow down. Please help right now if you can. 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at Janet Mefford. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Boy, I didn't think I would be talking about the issue of modesty so soon. We were talking about that just recently because of that song that came out from the Christian artist Matthew West, Modest is Hottest, and everybody got all worked up about it. Professing Christians got all worked up about it. Oh, you are, you know, doing horrible things to girls by saying the phrase, Modest is Hottest, and he comes back and says, I was just trying to say in kind of a funny way, I'm a dad of two girls, and, you know, you got to be careful out there, and I guess that's just not allowed anymore because everything is anti-purity culture. Does anybody else find it weird that people who profess to know and love Jesus Christ don't like modesty very much and get offended when you talk about modesty? Is that just flat out bizarre? Okay, here's another story that's making the rounds. This is from the New York Post. Christian youth pastor Bryce Brewer apologized for banning bikinis from his summer camp after receiving backlash. This is interesting. Here, here is what he put on his Facebook post just recently. So I need to issue an apology. I am using some humor here too. I have been a youth pastor on and off for over 20 years, and I have issued the ridiculous ultimatum to my female students at summer camp, one-piece swimsuits only. First of all, I am sorry. Number one, I am sorry that I didn't teach boys to control themselves. Number two, I am sorry I laid the weight of purity on a girl's swimsuit while she was swimming and not on the boy's responsibility to not be gross. Number three, I am sorry to all the girls who frantically searched for an appropriate one piece so that some male youth pastor could deem them appropriate. Story here, I accompanied my fiance and her daughter as we desperately looked for a cute one piece that would be appropriate for camp. It was hard and it stunk. He didn't say stunk. Number four, I am sorry that we have deemed a young woman's body as something that needs to be covered. What? And let young men's bodies be okay to be seen. Okay, I'm going to come back to that one. Number five, he says, I am sorry I ever let this be an item of discussion, usually led by men at any youth leader meeting. This must have been awful for my female leaders and students to be part of. Why are stomachs overtly sexual? Why is a little cleavage sinful? This is a youth pastor talking like this. Why are women meant to feel they are responsible for men's actual sin of lust? I think you've lost the plot here, sir. 
He says, so I am sorry to all the students, especially female, that we subjugated to our rules. I am sorry to my female students as they desperately, they desperately tried to search for a swimsuit in the days leading up to camp. Oh, come on. Finding a one-piece swimsuit just isn't that hard. Who's giving you your information, sir? I am sorry if you felt sexualized by us telling you to cover up. Okay, that's the opposite of feeling sexualized. It would be you know, show more skin would be sexualizing you. I'm sorry I didn't teach boys to be men and laid that responsibility on young women. Female students wear a swimsuit that lets you have fun. Male students stop being disgusting and control yourself. Well, that seems like a double standard, doesn't it? Girls do whatever you want and boys, it's all on you. Seems to me that you just flipped the script there, pastor. Youth pastors, male especially, stop being chauvinist and making female students feel bad for having female parts, Christians live like Jesus. Okay, let, 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 me, let me just address some of this. First of all, there are some very vocal people on social media, they're liberals, who love to scream and yell about various issues involving feminism. And this happens to be one of them. If you say the word modest to these women, they go berserk. Oh, are you saying that by having a girl cover up that that's her fault if a boy lost... Okay. Using that logic, you could say, well, then you, you can just say what the pastor said. Girls, wear whatever you want. I mean, he says, I still have standards that you've got to cover up. But why? I mean, then you could just wa walk around with nothing, right? And then it would be the boy's fault if he had a problem. Look, th there is so much wisdom in the word of God that is not being applied here. But I'm going to say uh, on a couple of levels, first, just on a female level, because I love these subjects when I can just get away with saying it because I'm female in a way that guys get screamed at for saying, look, you, you shouldn't be. And I, I'm assuming this is a Christian camp we're talking about. There's nothing wrong with telling girls to wear a one piece swimsuit. And you know what? It's not that hard to find one. You can find a one-piece swimsuit pretty much anywhere. It's just not that hard. So the girls who are trying to claim, you're making it so much harder on me because I can't find a swimsuit that's modest. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Look, I mean, just for one, if you if you go to any of the big box stores, you can find them. If you go to a department store, you can find them. If you go to some place like Land's End, if anybody gets the Land's End catalog at home, you know that Modesty has been back in for several years. They have all of these sunscreen-oriented swimsuits, so you can get stuff with long sleeves completely covering you up. You, you can get long, you know shorts to cover yourself, long skirts to cover yourself. There are all kinds of options for swimwear. So this pastor who thinks that women are just in terrible trouble because they just can't find a modest one piece, it's just not true. But second of all, I don't think that it's an either or situation. I think on the one hand, I've never heard anybody try to make the case that if a girl is exploited by a boy, that that was her fault in the first place. But it's like my typical example that I give girls would you dress up in a mini skirt and a tube top and walk down a dark alley at three in the morning in an urban area I mean that would be not so smart right so we know that dressing a certain way yields certain results and girls who act like we don't know what we're doing when we're wearing certain clothing are just being liars they're being liars girls know exactly what they're doing when they're wearing whatever they're wearing whether it's modest or immodest but more importantly we've got to go back to the word of god and i i go back to first timothy chapter two this bears repeating because you got to listen to it in context 
It starts out with Paul saying this. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. All right. This is important. We are to live godly and dignified lives in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. You have a passage right here tying the responsibilities of Christians to what they're wearing. You should, as a Christian, wear respectable apparel as a woman. Why is that controversial? You should wear what is proper for women who profess godliness, that it is a good work to not be wearing certain things that are going to draw undue attention to yourself. And I'm not a legalist on this, by the way. I like jewelry. I like dresses. I like all kinds of different clothing. I'm not at all legalistic about this. But there are limits because if you're a Christian, you want to obey the Lord. You don't just start out by saying, what can I get away with? And, And then attribute it to, well, you're a legalist if you think that I can't wear this, that, or the other thing. We know what the line is. At least most of us do, or most of us used to. Or we have First Peter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Respectable, respectful. There's an element of respect in what you're wearing. If you go into church, and I've seen people do this, wearing cutoff shorts and, you know, a, a half shirt and flip-flops, I don't find that respectful at all or respectable. And I know that's out of line a lot because people like to talk about come as you are. Yeah, but I think come as you are has limits because you wouldn't go to a job interview wearing that. You wouldn't go to the White House wearing that. It, it, give me a break. It's been overused, this line that you can just come as you are. You can come as you are. As a sinner, you don't have to clean up to get a bath, but you can look decent You can put on a nice pair of pants or a nice skirt if you're a girl, what have you. You can look decent and modest. Why are so many professing Christians having a problem with modesty? Because I think what's happened here is that you've got feminism overtaking what the Bible actually says. The the passage goes on to say, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're to be reverent in our behavior. Proverbs thirty-one thirty: charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Or even in Deuteronomy, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Do you think God doesn't care about how we wear what we wear? God cares. It's irresponsible to turn around and say, girls, wear whatever you want, because if a guy has a problem with what you're wearing, it's his problem. The Bible doesn't teach that. We should respect one another and honor the Lord in how we dress, how we speak, how we look. All of those things are important. 
And we should be always asking these questions. Lord, how can I obey you better? Lord, how can I be more submitted to you and your word? Those are the questions. We got to go. Thanks for being with us on Janet Mafford today. And we'll see you next time. This hour has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.